Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is our Giro d'Italia Super Sunday show partnered with Lacole. You know by now, Lacole is the quickest, fastest growing cycling kit manufacturer in the world. They produce road cycling performance apparel only. You'll be familiar with them already because they provide the kit worn by Byron McLaren, the Pro Peloton. They work with McLaren closely, optimizing that kit in the wind tunnel, uh, TT kits, etc., and the road kits, making sure they're as fast as possible, and that flows down to you, the consumer. If you want to check out their kit, you can find them at www.lacole.cc. The link is in the description of the YouTube video for this pod and the podcast show notes. Go and check out the deals they've gone on, got on at the moment. But I'm going to be honest with you guys about the Super Sunday and girls. Benji and I had to divide and conquer between some of the races, so um, some of us, that's the only way we we're going to actually be able to focus on them properly and provide the um, some accurate takes. So yeah, four races today: Giro Stage Eight, Gen Wevelgem Men and Women, and Paddy Tour. Three World Tour level races on the one day, just brutal. Put on to Giro Stage Nine from San Salvo to Rocco Rosso, two hundred eight kilometers long. Pretty flat. Then they, did, then they did the Paso Lanciano, 12.4 k's at 7%, and then this staircase climb for the last 90 kilometers, including the Paso San Leonardo, not very steep. Bosco di Sant'Onio, again, not very steep. Both of them were 4% and 5%. And then the last climb to Rocorazzo was about 10 k's at 4.5%. But it did have a bit of a muro. At the end, quite a steep finish. Uh, so we, we didn't think there was going to be big GC gaps today. The climbs were just not hard enough. If climbs, if people are climbing at like 25Ks an hour, the, the effect of a draft, especially with the headwind that was there today, just makes it yeah, virtually impossible for anyone to get big GC gaps, except for maybe that final climb. And a breakaway did form, Benji, um, with some names that you thought were going to be there. Yes, for sure. Firstly, when the rain started off, I want to reintroduce that we had two picks for the breakaway. I had Guerrero, you had Haig. And if they didn't come to a breakaway, you had Fulsang. But the race started off, attempts by Jack Haig's initially, Samitier from Movistar, Villela from Movistar, Narvaez from Ineos, Simon Pelot again from Androni, Josef Czerny, Matt Holmes of yesterday as well. So the names you would expect, we thought Haig would go into the breakaway because Simon Yates is gone and that team has Hamilton high up in GC, or at least on two minutes in GC, while Haig is pretty far down already and could have the freedom of going in the breakaway. For a tiny bit, it looked like that, but that group got caught again. The official ticker of the Giro said that Nibali was in that group, but I sincerely doubt Nibali was attacking so early on in the stage. Gotta keep in mind, though, this is already like after 80 kilometers, because for the first 80 kilometers, no breakaway formed. And this group was taken in again, 
And the moment we started at Paso Lanciano is when we have the actual breakaway of the day with the likes of Ruben Guerrero, Warbass, also Ben O'Connor and Castro Viejo. Those were the initial four. But after quite a bit of climbing, we saw that the others that grouped up towards that breakaway was Franchini from Groupama FDG, also Sepulveda of Movistar, and Giovanni Visconti for Vinny Zabu. So a breakaway of a solid seven riders and not even the bad ones because Castro Viejo is on six minutes and a half in GC. So as you can expect, the moment that the gap of that breakaway started hitting six minutes and a half, the Koenig started pacing in the peloton to try and control the pace, to try and keep that gap on six minutes 30 so that Almeida does not have any issues this stage. And when it comes to GC, it's starting to look like that. Now, in the breakaway, Guerrero, I'm happy to say that that was my pick. So I believe that he was one of the stronger climbers to get with Castro Viejo. I was a bit scared of Castro, but the difference between those riders is Castro can pace at a certain level of watts, but doesn't really have that acceleration. While Guerrero does have that acceleration and potentially needs a bit more of accelerations than just pure watching, because at a certain point, when there were still five people left in the group, we saw him in Guerrero actually getting dropped from the group, which was a bit to my surprise. And he got dropped because he was with someone else that didn't take over and they kind of played it out a bit and then Guerrero bridged to the front four again. So eventually, no harm done. And in that breakaway, we saw slowly but surely that we had two riders that came out on top. Warbass, nope, not Warbass, what am I saying? <laughs> Guerrero <laughs> and Castro Viejo. And this all happened on, you've got the Rocarazzo finish, like you said, with that wall at the end, but there's a bit of a plateau section in the middle. Basically, everybody except for Guerrero and Castro Viejo dropped at the starting section, and only those two riders were hitting the last portion of the race, which is that ramp at the end. But what happened there? Yeah, and it was Castro Viejo pacing constantly for Guerrero. I guess he might have been a little bit concerned about attacks coming out of the peloton. The gap was like six minutes, but then Trek had been pacing and Sunweb had paced, and then I think Lucas Hamilton attacked out of the peloton with Tagag and Hart, maybe eating into that gap, bringing it down to a minute. So maybe that's why Castro Viejo felt compelled to sort of keep setting pace. But Guerrero sat on for 90% of this climb, I think, and Castro Viejo was just in full super domestique mode like we saw him in the Tour de France for Ineos and they got to the wall and predictably it played out as we expected. Guerrero just kicked past Castro Viejo in the wet when it got pretty steep even though Castro was trying his best to close out his line on the front through those sort of bit of a chicane but Guerrero won incredibly easily. He was able to start celebrating like 55 metres from the finish, pointing at the line, etc., um, and posting up and enjoying the win. So kind of gifted from Castroviejo, but he's hampered by the fact that he probably doesn't have much acceleration. And, I mean, yeah, I think he did work too much, to be honest, Castroviejo. He could have played a bit more cat and mouse. He didn't really play any cards today, to be honest, in the final climb. He just, I think his... His best chance of winning was to ride absolutely full on the hardest parts of the climb and empty the tank so that he wouldn't even have any form of sprint left and hope Guerrero would drop uh, because if it came down to the wall, he got, yeah, Guerrero was way too strong. Uh, we saw Guerrero come second in the Vuelta stage behind Coos last year. He won 
whatever kick it was in that steep finale there, uh, 38 seconds behind Coos, but ahead of the other riders that were in that break with him. So, yeah, congrats to Benji. He picked Guerrero. Uh, it's pretty difficult to pick a breakaway <laughs> winner like that yesterday. Thank so, um, pretty. We, we got we got one one thing to ask you guys and girls. If you enjoy the podcast and you think we have good picks, etc., just share it to one other person you think would like it. Um, I guess it's free to do, and it helps us out immeasurably. If you all did that, it would double the listenership, and it would make a massive difference. Because Benji's picks are on fire right now, and are you were you surprised, Benji? Were you pinching yourself, or were you like, "Yes, I'm a genius. I knew this would happen." <laughs> I did like internally flex after the race. Not gonna lie, but in general, I'm always happy that my picks turn out somewhat okay. We had Carter win the first week on that one stage where Ghana won that came very close, and I felt like he was gonna take it, and it was kind of disappointing that he didn't. So. I'm kind of happy that this is a bit of a a resurgency that that my my pick is valid this time around. So I'm happy with it. And to be honest with the podcast, I think we're at like at least 75% of the stages somewhat correctly guessed. And that's that's kind of fun as well because that shows us that the time we put into cycling also delivers something of knowing stuff about it. So it's always fun to have that. But Gotta be honest, Guerrero, I didn't expect him to actually start fighting for the KOM points either. And he actually took every single point along the way. And Guerrero is now leader, took over from, who was it, Ghana still in the lead? Or Visconti took over, I don't know. One of the two had it. And Visconti is now second on 76 points. That is eight points lower than the Guerrero's 84. So the battle for KOM is totally on. It's totally different than in the Twitter France. In the Twitter France, Cosmo was wearing it and nobody bothered for it. Now people actually fight for it every stage. And I find that amazing. It's a very different system. The climbs are not that logical when it comes to category. We've spoken about it a lot, but I feel like it's a different take on climbing or a KOM jersey because they probably select the climbs and decide based on that how important it would be if you come on top on this climb. And it's not necessarily the larger the climb is the most important one. I feel like they're trying to make it more strategic to try and get the KOM jersey. And I kind of like it that way because we've seen much more leaders than in the Tour de France. And they're basically all better climbers in my honest opinion. So <laughs> maybe I'm a bit harsh for Cosmo. Definitely as he wrote amazing in by tour today, but we'll speak about that later on. I don't know. Do you feel like the KOM jersey is a, a a better system with these odd KOM categories, or do you find it just annoying to watch? No, I think it's better. Um, it doesn't really make any difference to me what whether a climb is a Cat Two or a Cat One because we actually look at the gradient and the length of the climb. I can decide for myself how difficult a climb is, regardless of whatever it's categorized as. And I do like. The, you know, it is kind of stupid if someone gets in a break in the Tour de France and there's two Category 1 long climbs that the breakaway is allowed to do really, really easy and someone just mops up low to KOM points. Um, that isn't really the best climber. That doesn't really make sense earlier in the race. And it, the KOM competition was an afterthought, really, in the Tour this year. So I like what's happening in the Giro. It's, uh, it's heating up to be really good, as well as the points classification and 
of course, yeah, in also leading the teams classification and Love Star a fair way down. That's obviously pretty important. But back to what was happening in the Peloton, we said this yesterday. I think Benji said in the preview show, yes, Hamilton, I think, attacked out of the um, the Peloton that was chasing. Or they weren't really chasing, to be honest. I think Trek were trying, and then they realized they only had Brambiller on the front. And like when they let Fabro go on Etna, I think – Brambilla was pulling quite hard and the riders behind him were like, no, nah, we're not really following you. And that's the problem with Nibali not being second wheel on Brambilla's wheel. So the pace wasn't that high on the final climb and Sunweb had a lot of riders there too. So that was a concern for, I guess, for Trek in case Kelderman, who's looking really good and is a genuine favourite, second favourite right now in the betting markets for the Giro overall, maybe they were a little bit concerned that, yeah, on a finale that doesn't really suit Nibali, which we called out in the preview. And yesterday, they didn't want to make the pace too high. So it was Gagan Hart and Hamilton who attacked. I think Gagan Hart actually gained a little bit of time on GC, uh, but he's like two minutes 40 back still. He gained like two places. He came oh, after the breakaway. He was like 13 seconds ahead of Hamilton, who he attacked with. But the big move today, well, it wasn't really that big, was... Um, Kelderman, Fulsang and Hindley. So they attacked. I think Fulsang really, it was Fulsang initiating it. We knew this was going to happen, sort of punchy finish like this. He's better than Nibali at. He gapped, immediately got a gap to Nibali and he went with Jai Hindley. And Jai Hindley at Herald Sun Tour, you go and watch my Herald Sun Tour video with Seb Berwick and watch those two going toe-to-toe on quite a steep finale in Herald Sun Tour. I know this is Giro and Herald Sun Tour is not the same level, but just if you want to go and see what sort of riders they are doing it in previous races so you can get more familiar with them. Hindley, pretty good result from him uh, coming 10th. Well, 10th on the stage, but with the GC guys of Kelderman and Fulsang, who put three seconds into Micra and Conrad and, what was it, about 10 seconds or so, 10, 12 seconds into Nibali, who couldn't follow them on that final climb. And, yeah, was losing... Losing seconds pretty quickly, but still 10 to 12 seconds in the grand scheme of things. Not massive, but what did happen was Kelderman moved ahead of Bill Bow on GC because Bill Bow lost a fair bit of time. Arn Van Oka moved down to seventh. Fulsang moves up to sixth. Four seconds now behind Vincenzo Nibali. Pozzavivo moves up to fourth. Yeah. Does this change anything that you think about GC, Benji? What happened on this finale, or was it just. A few seconds here or there doesn't really move the needle for you. I don't think it really moves the needle, but it does give me a confirmation on Kelderman. And he's been having a plethora of bad luck in his career when it comes to Grand Tours and crashes and just being sick and so forth at the end of a Grand Tour. So he always had bad luck in that sense. Got some top 10s, if I recall correctly, maybe a top 5 somewhere in the Vuelta, but I'm not sure about that. But in general, I feel like this might be the Giro where he can strike through that. But we've got some hard stages to come. But he's got a time trial. He is able to have a better time trial than Nibali on paper. But then again, that doesn't mean much at the moment, considering imagine if the forecast of the winds <laughs> changes again mid-time mid, mid time trial. So let's talk about that the day before that. But I feel like he might be on his way to get a podium here and... That's a rider I would not have put on the podium before, DiGiro. While in Tirreno, I already said that I would put him in a top five position, though. 
because he showed that he is able to do that. He is pretty good in these kind of climbs. So I'm just waiting to see what he can offer on the last week because that's going to be the most decisive section. But he's also got the best team to me, personally, because Jehan... Jay, wow, I just murdered that name. Jay Hindley, is that how you pronounce it? Jai Hindley. Jai Hindley, Get okay. it right. Thank you very much. You, see, you listen to how hard I try <laughs> with, with, the, with the Belgian and Dutch names? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Jay, Jay, oh wow, I just said it wrong again. <laughs> and you can't do Jai Hindley. Jai Hindley. Um, we've got Michael Matthews, who was working for Kelderman today. We also have basically some Allman, who had a weaker day today, but then again, he was working quite well as well. So I feel like Sunweb might be the better mountain team quite unexpectedly here. So that's pretty cool to see, to see some upsets in that. And I can't wait to have a bit of a rest day as well in the Giro, because today was... Uh, heavy day with all the other races but yeah tomorrow's a rest day yeah i'm pretty stoked for that by the way uh the ticker wasn't lying benji when it said nibley got in that break with haig that actually happened there's photos of it Haig just put it on instagram and yeah he's saying that's why their breakaway failed because nibley was uh was following the break haig was trying to get into so <laughs> um fuck nibley and no nah, i'm just kidding I just, <laughs> I'm kidding. I just wanted want Haig. Haig was my pick for today's stage. So Nibali, who obviously is Benji's favourite rider, closing down the Haig movement at Sun, we've had to follow. And Benji's pick, Guerrero, won. So um, Benji won, me, zero, or Benji probably five at this point. But that was zero stage nine. Been a great first nine days, although the last couple of stages have been a bit boring. Um, not a great weekend for the zero in comparison to their previous stages, which have been really exciting. But, yeah, I can't wait for what keeps happening. It's, it doesn't really matter to me how strong the field is, etc. as long as there's exciting racing. And, and I can't wait to see what Kelderman can do, even if we don't have Stelvio or something, which actually is looking kind of like it might happen. Even on Mortarolo, what can he do against, say, Kreuzweik and uh, Vincenzo Nibli? But, yeah, that was our Giro wrap-up. We'll have our rest day recap of the whole first week tomorrow. And... Thanks for Lacole, as always, for partnering with us for our Giro podcast. On to the big one-day race of today, Gent-Wevelchem, the men's race first. Stack start list, you probably already listened to our preview, MVDP, Wav Van Aert, Mads Pedersen, Bertiol, etc. The list goes on and on. It's had a few sprinters, uh, Sam Bennett and Caleb Ewan lining up. And, yeah, it starts in Ypres. This goes through a lot of the World War sites uh, that I've been to, sort of very historic place in in the world, in Northern Europe. Starts in Ypres, finishes in Wevelchem, 233 kilometres. First half is pretty much flat. And then they get into some reps of short climbs. Schaufenberg, uh, Benji, can you please take over for these climbs? Wiedenberg. I'm guessing that's it. I've, I don't have a profile open, so... Barnabas, <laughs> Monteberg, I just needed the other one. And Kemmelberg, I can do as well. So there, short cobbled climbs. The really decisive one is the Kemmelberg for some reason. Uh, it's not the steepest, but it just seemed to be, even in the women's race, that's where the race got split a couple of times. I think maybe because it's, yeah, it's cobbled and, yeah, now that Paris Bay has been cancelled, We've got to make the most of these cobbled races and certainly Hentvevelhem men delivered. And I watched this race 
pretty much full to the yeah, exclusively and I didn't really watch the Giro stage but who was where did you join in Benji and, and who was in the break at that point and who was I guess chasing in the peloton basically I joined in when it started the coverage and it really annoys me that they covered us so late because the Hendrevelgem exists out of a flat part at the start going through the Muren, which is a portion of West Flanders and that area is known for having a clear possibility for echelons. There's always so much wind there, and today it was definitely the same. Apparently there, there was plenty of wind, and the group, the peloton, split into three groups before the race even broadcasted. But luckily for the viewers, they didn't really miss anything because the group just came together just before the broadcast. So nothing really major happened because of that. And I think the only notable thing is that a few crashes happened, including the likes of Oliver Narsen, who had some injury marks at his back by falling on his back. So I wasn't expecting too much after seeing that because he apparently fell on the same knee that he fell on on Bing Bang Tour. But then again, a few stages later, he won something. So potentially a few days after this, this might be a, a bit of a lucky side towards the Tour of Flanders. But anyway, let's continue onwards. The breakaway, a very interesting breakaway because one rider I did not really inspect in there, but loved that he was in there. First of all, Alexis Ducujar from Ajdezela Mondial, Konishev from Mitchelton, Leonardo Basso from Ineos Grenadiers, Maurice from BVC. I've got no clue what that team is. BNB Vital Concept? Probably. Molly for Wallonie Bruxelles and De Wilde for Sportive Vlaanderen. And the final rider, Mark Cavendish, the Manx Missile for Bahrain McLaren. I genuinely was happy to see that because. I like seeing old people in breakaways, as in all the legends of this of the sport, just doing stuff that might not be in their way, but they're doing it just because and because they're at the end of their career, most likely pretty soon. And Cavendish doesn't have a contract yet, so he has to show himself to hopefully do something about that. And I think he was in negotiations with Bahrain a few days ago, so potentially that was to be a domestique or something in the coming years because it sounded like that but one thing that i noticed all out the parkour is that flawless classics the organizers of hentwevelhem are basically the only organizers that i've seen in a long while that follow the uci rule of having barriers at the side of every cobble section to prevent riders from riding on the side you've got that with the a lot in the Tour of Flanders that riders keep pacing on the side of the road and not really on the on the cobbles themselves. And today on the Camelberg, that was perfect. And the riders could not really go off the Camelberg's cobble road structure. And because of that, they couldn't benefit off of that. So pretty cool to see that, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. It makes a big difference than being forced to ride on the cobbles. And it's definitely safer. And I think the main point to get to here is when... There was a very strong group in front with Matteo Trentin, Mads Pedersen, and Stefan Kung. It also had, I think, Vermeersch, uh, two Vermeersch brothers as well. I think Cavendish should join that group somehow. I'm probably missing a couple of riders, but the main ones I, I want to refer to are Kung, Trentin, Rowe, and Pedersen. And that was, they were clear all the way until the last climb, which was the Camelberg. So you got the last climb with about 35 kilometers to go. Hard cobble climb. It's, it's hard enough for there to be gaps and separations on it. 
You've got the Barnaberg just before that. So in the peloton, I think Quickstep had missed that move or they didn't have the riders they wanted in that move. So they had Seneschal, Lampard, I think, behind, as well as Askren. While Van Aert and MVDP had missed that move. But it really wasn't that big a gap, like 10 seconds or so. And they'd, they'd kept it in check, particularly up to those last few climbs. And onto the Camelberg, I think that Kung group with Trenton and Pedersen only had or five seconds at the most, and it was pretty clear that the peloton was going to catch them. Wout van Aert moved to the front at the base of the Camelberg, and I think the camera missed it when he really started going, but he launched so hard at the base of that climb and very, very quickly caught that group who had split themselves. I'm pretty sure Kung had attacked with Trenton in his wheel and Pedersen trying to get there uh, at midway through the Kemmelberg, dropping the other riders in that breakaway. So at the same time, you've got the remnants of that breakaway all across this cobbled climb going really slowly, and then you've got Wout van Aert going past them at about 1,000 kilometres an hour trying to get and bridging across to Pedersen, Kung, and Trentin. You've got MVDP who was like 35th wheel going into the base of the last climb, and then had to make up loads of wheels while Van Aert attacked. He then had to bridge longer. It was the same. Brabantje Pale when Alphilippe was attacking, just imagine that same thing again, um, costing himself extra watts here and there that he doesn't really need to with poor positioning. And then I think Kung, Trentin, and, and Pedersen went over the top of the Kemmelberg with a, a little bit of a gap, but then they got... Malvana bridged them with MVDP and then really the main race-winning group had formed. And, yeah, who was, for completeness, Benji, who was in that group apart from Kung, Trentin, Pedersen, MVDP and Van Aert? Because I'm sure I'm missing somebody important. So they had the remnants of that first group that was caught. So the likes of Gujar, Van Mark and such was still in the group. Roe Pedersen as well, Mats Pedersen, Vermeer, Sternesen, Kung, like you said, and the Florian Vermeer as well. But I think he dropped on that Fahr Camel. Now, the people that bridged up were Van Aert, Van der Poel, like you say, Senchal, Betiol, Asgren, Dagenkolb, and also Lampard, but he joined a tiny bit later than all the rest. But basically, that whole group formed one group after the final Camelberg. And we know from the Paco that after the final Camelberg, that there's not really much to go off anymore. You've got a pretty flat section into Menen and then finishing in Wabelheim. And there's no real place where you can use the wind or where you can use a bridge or something. It's all based on tactical maneuvers and attacking and trying to respond to everybody and doing that. And there became a very clear pattern in that because I think with about eight kilometers to go, there was no real attack yet. Everybody was still pacing together. I feel like throughout the whole race, from the third Camelback onwards to eight kilometers before the line, I think Vinod did about like 20% of the work in that group. Either I'm like extremely blind, but I, I saw Von Aert sometimes do two relays at the front. Van der Poel did that once as well, where he just did relays shortly for a tiny bit, and then suddenly he started doing two relays in a row, just going off the front, getting in the wheel of the second rider, which was Pedersen, and going to relay again. So it was clear that those two riders were the real engines in that group for me. Pedersen, 
not really pacing as hard as the others, but still doing his portion of the work compared to Betiol, who was not really doing much at all personally. I think that Van Mark did most of the work there, and that, well, led to, I think, Betiol being one of the first attackers in that group. One man had been attacking, that was Stefan Kung. I think he'd attacked and only got caught with about 25 to go. He went off the front. He only ever got like five to six seconds. Obviously, he's a time trialist. And just reminding everyone of the teams in that group, you've got three quick step, Asker and Lampart, Seneschal. None of them are the strongest sprinters and probably none of them are the strongest individually either as just pure classics riders compared to the other riders in this group. You've got two education first, neither of whom have got any chance in the sprint, Betiol and Van Mark. You've got a pure time trialist, Stefan Kung. Trenton, who's just a budget version of Van Aert and Van der Poel. So he's not going to probably beat them in the finish. Mads Pedersen, who I think is the out-and-out quickest man in that group, and I said that before the Tour de France, I said he's like top five quickest man just about in the world uh, when I made that video about his underrated sprint. Van Aert and Van der Poel, clear favourites. Everyone's probably looking at them. Van Aert did have a teammate, Mike Turnison, in that group who... I feel like Jumbo Visma didn't really use him that much. Uh, they didn't really play off that extra teammate either. So you've got multiple teams that have multiple riders in that group. All of those teams know that they are not going to be Van Van Aert or Van der Poel in the finale, in the sprint. And you've got Mads Pedersen with no teammate, but also no one looking at him to close gaps either because he's not a race favourite, even though... Benji and I picked him yesterday on the podcast. Degenkolb was also in that group, the German for Lotto. Similar situation to Pedersen, but he just doesn't have the kick. But no one's looking at him to really bring back anything or do any work. So it's a difficult situation for Van Aert and MVDP where you've got such a large group, you've got no real climbs left in the race where you can really put the power down to make a difference, where you can split the group and thin it, like in Ronde van Vlaanderen. You've got riders in that group who are not, they're not scrubs, right? Like Mads Pedersen came second on the Champs-Élysées and Betiol won Flanders. Like it's not just, you can't overpower these guys and yet they're the underdogs and they and Quickstep are going to, you know Quickstep are going to attack you. So very, very difficult situation for them, uh, yeah, in that group. And as you said, Benji, nothing really happened until maybe the last seven to six Ks to go when attack started happening. Um, but yeah, who was the first man, the first major attack from the riders tr- attacking basically Waffenard and Matthew van der Poel? Well, I think that there's one attack that Lampard did at a certain point, but it didn't really lead to anything, not even too much trouble to close it down. But it became clear that they were going to try and attack one by one. And the moment Lampard get caught, you had on the other side of the road Asgren move up, and Asgren was about to attack, but then Betiel came out of his wheel and surprised him more than Asgren was surprising anybody else at that moment. And Asgren decided not to chase that, and Betiel actually got a, a solid gap, but the second group started chasing, and I think that it was a quick step rider that closed down Betiel the first time around, but the majority of attacks after that. I feel like it came down to two riders only. 
and that's Fanart and Van de Poel, and that's going to be a nemesis story that we're going to talk about quite a bit in this final section. But what did you feel like was the next very decisive attack in that group? Well, Van Aert actually attacked, I think, straight after Betiol. Van der Poel closed him down. And then Stefan Kung had a last-ditch attack, but he was pretty tired, um, I think. And, yeah, but hats off to Stefan Kung, acknowledging that he, he gave up maybe a fifth or a sixth, sixth today. I don't know where he actually finished, but accepting that he can't win in a sprint, so he has to attack early. Then it was Trentin attacking with Betiol and Seneschal on the wheel, and this is now with two Ks to go. So Pedersen hadn't closed down anything. Degen Colbert actually closed down a fair few attacks, or at least when Wout van Aert had sprinted to close down a gap. If it wasn't Matthew van der Poel on van Aert's wheel, who I felt like was closing down a lot, it was actually Degen Kolb. Uh, but it was, yeah, Trentin attacking with Betiol and Seneschal in the last two and a half Ks or so. That was just the last draw where... Van Aert had been getting rolled by Kung, Betiol, etc. in very quick succession. Like, there's no respite for him in this last 5Ks. Matthew van der Poel had then been closing Van Aert, trying to bridge across to those moves. And then the minute that happens, another attack goes. So there's Trentin attack, which was really well-timed, and then Betiol and Seneschal were working with him. Was That was clearly going away. And... Van Aert tried to close it. He's trying. He's got Van der Poel on his wheel. He flicks Van der Poel, and it's clear he's got nothing left. And Van Aert wasn't really making much impression on that gap. And Mads Pedersen goes to the other side of the road, starts sprinting, and, yeah, no one even really saw him, actually, when he initially attacked across that gap. And, like, 10 million race IQ for Mads Pedersen is obviously no one was really expecting him to do much work in that group. They were attacking each other, etc. He was able to sit in the wheels and he didn't miss a decisive split, except for this one from Trenti and Seneschal and Bethiol up the road. And he's like, I've got to snap close this as quickly as possible so that I can rest up a little bit for the sprint uh, in the last 200 metres. And he got across pretty easily, Pedersen. Very, very strong from him and Van Aert and then VDP were looking at each other. So were you surprised, Benji, that Van Aert pretty much accepted with with 1,500 metres to go, Van Aert decided, I'm happy to lose lose the race here. I accept losing the race here because if I close this gap, I'm going to lose in the sprint anyway. So, yeah, do you think Van Aert could have done anything different at all in this race, really? I think he could have responded, but that's not really... Yeah, it's it's a difficult situation. I believe that what he did was expected, as in... When Peterson crossed the gap and he saw that nobody was taking over in the second group, he was like, well, I'm not going to do the same thing I did at the World Championships and base my ass off for a race that I can't win anyway. I've won enough races already. And it it became clear that he was angry at Vanderpool as well a bit or salty towards Vanderpool. We'll talk about it in a second because he decided to sit up in the group and he just sticked on the wheel of Vanderpool from that point. It was but like 500 meters to go until like 200 meters to go. He was literally in the wheel of Vanderpool, stuck to it, and he rode to the line in that. Vanderpool obviously knows that. And because of that, you've got a situation where Vanderpool is dropping from the back of the group. Uh, Van Aert is in his wheel and the others can fight it out. And it became clear in the interviews afterwards as well. I um, I don't know. I don't know what I should feel about it. I feel like Fanart 
probably could have done more to close the gap to the three riders that got away, but he's been closing every gap so far and he kind of just misses the decisive one. So maybe it's the Belgian curse that we usually have with the national team, but yeah, it's the one group that he shouldn't have let go away and definitely not this far in the race and he's not there. So if you close down like six groups beforehand, six attacks beforehand, one extra is probably not going to kill you. And you might get closer to a victory, but on the other hand, he's won a lot of races and probably is like, well, if they don't want to work, then they don't win. I've got enough victories. And it looked like that was indeed his feeling afterwards. But getting on to the actual winner of the race, going into the finale, Seneschal, Trentin, Betiol and Pedersen. Betiol probably knew he'd done his dash at that point, uh, attacking a couple of times, and he's not got the best sprint compared to those guys. Trentin starts kicking early, Pedersen on his wheel, Pedersen comes off his wheel, I think to the right-hand side, Seneschal on the wheel of Mads Pedersen, and then Pedersen opens it up with like 200 to go and no contest really, way too good, way too strong. And yeah, if he's got clear air in front of him and half-decent legs with 200 left in in a sprint like this against Seneschal... Even if Seneschal gets a full draft, like Seneschal wasn't even didn't even get to the point of overlapping his wheel at all. He even got gapped off the wheel a little bit by Pedersen. He was able to post up Mads. Unfortunately, not in the World Champs jersey, but taking Ken Favelham. He's still underrated, Mads Pedersen. And it's a shame that all the headlines are, going to, are about Matthew van der Poel and uh, Wout van Aert and, and whatever, but Pedersen's so good. And he's just someone that, is so scary to having a reduced bunch with you like that. I think he's kind of like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure who he's like. Um, even he's kind of like Peter Sagan as well, because like Peak Sagan, because yes, he's not as good maybe at all the other things Sagan did. But if you go to the line with him, I still I think he's kind of I think he's quicker than Wapanat in a head to head drag. I, I haven't really. I, I need to see it. Maybe that's a controversial opinion, but. Just the way Pedersen was able to sprint in Nice and then Champs Elysees, yeah, I think he's I think he's pretty fast, Mads Pedersen. Maybe it's a wash between the two of them. I think he's definitely quicker than Mathieu van der Poel in a flat sprint. Um, so yeah, someone that people kind of sleep on. We knew that yesterday. Benji and I said yesterday we think there's a possibility Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel will look at each other. We thought it was more likely that van Aert would win the race. Not going to lie about that. We thought he is the most likely rider to win it, but the odds on Pedersen, yeah, it's just a guy we both thought could win and was much more likely to win than the market suggested. And another big win for him, adding that to his Palmares, Mads Pedersen. Let's see how he goes in Flanders this year. Unfortunately, I think that hopefully that will go ahead now that Roubaix's um, been cancelled. But what was the the beef or is there any beef, Benji? What happened afterwards with the sports interviews with Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert? So, firstly, van Aert was getting interviewed and the initial reaction after the race was, I'm going to try and quote it as best as I can, van der Poel preferred losing than me winning. And also added to that, that van der Poel was only looking at one rider and that was him. And that he added on to that quote, well, he should know that I've won more races this season and because of that, I'm 
not really that bad about losing one extra here just because of this. And yeah, it's it's a quote that could be taken as a bit arrogant, but I feel like I enjoy this drama, <laughs> not going to lie. I feel like both of them are pretty class writers usually. And probably Vanad is also a tiny bit salty. Vanderpool is probably a tiny bit salty. They are the 1v1 that people saw when they were looking at this race. And obviously that's going to create some drama. They've had drama before in the cyclocross seasons. And it's it's special that they've been riding against each other for 10 years with each other as their main competitors. And I feel like this is the first year in road cycling where that's fully the case because last year i think that there was not really that 1v1 battle between the two while right now they are the two clear best cobble riders for me personally and because of that you've got that automatic nemesis between those two riders now vanderpool responded to that in the class way that he usually does as well in the sense of it's a bit low from out for saying that because i always drive to win so it's a very short statement, but yeah, he just denies that he wrote to make Fanad lose. While I feel like both of them wrote to have each other's lose more than winning themselves, which made for a very interesting final. I don't know what your take is on the final regarding those two riders. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think I think Wablanart rode to win the race. I think... Yeah, you're right. For like literally the last 1,500 metres, Wavanagh was like, enough, I'm not doing anything anymore and I'm letting the race go up the road. But I think for the, all the time before then, I think Wavanagh was going full uh, uh, for the win. And I think Vanderpol, he, he wasn't riding to lose. He was just riding in a reactive way rather than Wafana being at the front of the race, closing down moves, maybe one of the moves of his own, attacking on the Kemmelberg, etc. And whereas Vanderpool is the one closing gaps. So of course Vanderpool has to close the gap to Wafana. Like that's ludicrous to say that he shouldn't do that. And if he asks anyone else to do it, they're just gonna ask him to, they're not gonna do it. Mads Pedersen will just rely on Vanderpool closing the gap to Wafana. So he has to. He's, so he's damned if he does and he damns, he's damned if he doesn't. I do think maybe he was cooked at the end. He probably should have helped Valpanard a little bit sooner when Maz Pedersen and Seneschal and Trentin and Betty all were up the road and he didn't pull through. He really only just closed down Valpanard. That one was a little bit like, oh, you maybe you're racing a little bit to lose there, <laughs> to lose there because, <laughs> yeah, Van Aert's not – there's no bluff you're calling. Van Aert is not going to keep pulling – those guys back on his own um but yeah i hope there's more beef and more drama it'd be great if there was proper drama on the road i think i haven't watched all their cyclocross races but if they were marking each other in cyclocross races in the past were there any instances where that meant that they both then lost and didn't get on the podium and someone else went up the uh the forest track or whatever <laughs> the circuit and and won because that's what sort of happened today and if Wafanat wants to blame anybody, it's kind of himself for not using the climbs effectively to have a, a, a manageable group because he's going into the final 30Ks with no more climbs, no real way of 
getting away from those guys with bronze medal world champs time trials and a straight-up beast, Kung, who can bring back moves. He's got three quick-step riders, Asker and Seneschal and Lampart, who are beasts in that group. He's got Van Mark and Betiol, Betiol Flanders winner. He's got Maz Pedersen, arguably the quickest man in the group, and it's raining. It's It's been a re- relatively hard day. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's super fast. He's got him in that group. He's got Degenkolb, etc. It's a large group, so he had to know... Well, he's getting into a group like that. They're going to work him over, mm. and and Van der Poel too. They're going to. Oh, you disagree? I disagree a tiny bit, and that's because I think at the third Camelberg top that Turnison was also in the group, teammate of Van Aert, and I think that it was only with about twenty-five kilometers to go when someone reacted to that Kung attack or something that Turnison dropped from that group because of well just the teammates being left behind in a tactical play. As Vanard was in the front group, he did not respond to the attack, and eventually the gap was too large. And that's also the way Van Marke dropped from that group. So I feel like we can't really say that on the climb itself, he should have gone with a more manageable group, because if Turnison was in that front group as well, he probably would not have this problem. But then again, you're also right on the other sense, because he does not have enough riders then, or he has no ability to control the people that are in that front group either. So. I think that the best way for Turnison to be useful here would have been to have him just react to everything for Van Aert and just kill himself for Van Aert. I don't think Turnison was done when he dropped with Van Marke. He didn't look like it. And I feel if they played that a bit different, you might have a situation where Turnison is riding more effectively for Van Aert in the last 25 kilometers and can be of play in that last 10 kilometers. So. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm overrating the or underrating the tiredness on Turnison at that point, but I feel that if he was in that front group and not with Van Marke, then he could have played a big role in the final to try and counter a bit more and make sure that Van Aert was not really in the situation that he ended up in. I think that was the plan, but he got dropped when there was a move, like pretty early, and I think he was getting dropped. I don't know, like Roe got dropped. Uh... I don't think he just chose to go back there. I think in the last 5Ks, if you've got attack after attack after attack, it's going to be impossible for Wout van Aert and Van der Poel to manage that. And the riders are just of this quality, and there were so many of them attacking them, it means they pretty much can't win. And they're always all the other riders are just leaning on them to close down every other attack. So what they should be doing, or what... I guess Van Aert should have done would be try to thin the group even after the Kemmelberg instead of being reactive to attacks in the last 5Ks which he can't then recover from even if it does come down to a sprint he should have maybe tried to thin the group out a little bit more go clear with even if he brings Matthew van der Poel with him if it's a group of five four or five and there's not three quick step two education first etc that, that's just more manageable maybe he gets rid of Degenkolb one of Degen Corbel Pedersen as well. And yeah, I think that would have been more manageable for him. Maybe that would, wasn't possible, but I still think if a split happened and then Vanderpool, the problem was Vanderpool wasn't really working with him and pulling over him quickly either when that sort of thing did happen. Because Van Aert did try to accelerate at some point. So I'm not really being I'm not really being critical of Van Aert. It's just 
it is what it is. When you're the favourites, Sagan's been treated like this for years in classics. That's why he hasn't won as many, I guess, monuments as people expected him to because he's been the heavy favourite for them so often that he gets marked out of the race. And it's going to be really interesting at Tour of Flanders, but Flanders has harder climbs and more of them. So different to Gent Weibelheim where it's often a larger group going into the finish and then the tactics are always so good in this race, uh, particularly like in 2015 because, yeah, you, you do get these larger groups. But, yeah, you got any last thoughts on the men's Ken Vavelham, Benji? A classic addition already with so many class riders in that in that finale. I loved it, and it was very intriguing until the final. There was a battle within the battle with the Vanderpool versus Van Aert thingy, and just in general, a very good, well-rounded race. It was very interesting from the start as well. We had riders being kind of blown off their bike tiny bit. I think it was Oz or something, somewhere mid-range. But yeah, it, it was a pretty heroic edition. Not the one, not like the one where Thomas got blown off his bike. But I really enjoyed it. It's the cobble season really getting re-triggered again, I would say, because we've got the Tour of Flanders coming up. Obviously, the base of the calendar, but... I'm so looking forward to the Tour of Flanders, and hopefully, it's a very good, this well, a very rainy edition <laughs> to uh, to make it as heroic as possible. Because I I love these cobble races, and it's in my home region, so that adds on to it. But we also had a women's race off to Evelgem, and I'll throw it to you for that. Yeah, so Benji had to go back to work for the women's race. He was in charge of Paris Tour, so he'll do Paris Tour. Afterwards, women's race, 141Ks and a very similar circuit, starting in Ypres, finishing in Wevelchem. And it had the Kimmelberg, Bannerberg, uh, Vedagenberg, Scherpenberg. But it, the last climb, again, was the Kimmelberg with about 35Ks to go. So exactly the same finale as the men, same name as the race, as the men's. And also, Flanders Classics has the women's race after the men's. And there's a very strategic reason for that and also the same reason why we have the women's race coverage after the men's recaps and not as a separate podcast it it's in the numbers the analytics show even in the tv coverage and podcasts and the youtube videos i've done if you tie them together and have high audience retention and push it capture that and then put it into the women's race you will get way more um yeah audience for that for the race or for the podcast or for whatever medium of the women's races. So there is method behind the way Flanders Classics has done it and we do the podcast. But, yeah, the favourites were usually sprinters to have a little bit of a better time in the women's hand Wevelhem over the years, like Julian Dor, uh, she's had a couple of podiums, Bastianelli, Kirsten Vild, who a couple she had, um, she got pulled out because of a, a COVID scare, I think, or maybe she tested positive. I don't want to spread fake news, but she pulled out, because of coronavirus, I'm not sure whether she had a positive test or not, but she wasn't racing last year's winner, Kirsten Field. Um, but we thought Sunweb were going to be the strongest overall team with Conor Rivera and Lippert, and then obviously they would be riding for their probably strongest sprinter on the team and strong, strongest pure sprinter in women's cycling, Lorena Viebs. and But Lippert being in the best young rider jersey in World Tour, who's probably better on the climbs than Biebs. But nothing really happened that I saw. Well, there, there was breakaways, etc. They got brought back. But when we I tuned in straight after the men's race 
Uh, I've been watching out of the corner of my eye. It was all together with like 45, 48 Ks to go. Got trek pacing a little bit uh, and then slowly increasing the pace as they got into the base of the Kemmelberg, the final ascent, with like 38 Ks to go. Sunweb had been at the front before then. Rivera had been pacing a a fair bit for Lippert and just keeping her safe, but no major attacks from Lippert. I thought they were going to play her as a card beforehand and then have Lorena Vives sort of sitting on. Uh, We thought they'd do that in the men's race as well, Sunweb. But that didn't really eventuate. Trek pacing, they got Diagnan, Ellen van Dijk, very strong in this sort of race, and Elisa Longo-Borghini. They paced and pretty much burnt Audrey Cordon-Rigaud beforehand. She dropped, I think, before the Kemmelberg had started, and they had them in really good position going to that climb, and they pretty much shredded the group and created a selection of favourites. And it was pretty interesting actually seeing who made it into that group. Uh, you got Lotta Kopecky, who had to be a favourite for this for this race, for the women's race. She's one of the best sprinters at the moment in World Tour. You've got Lisa Brenauer, German uh, national champion, pretty decent time trial. Sarah Roy for Mitchelton Scott. Hasn't won a race of this calibre in her career, but a good sprinter. Got Longaboard, Guinea, Diagnan, and Van Dyke. So three track Sega Freighter riders in there, but none of them the best sprinter. Just like when Quickstep had the three on their own in the men's race. This is now with 30Ks to go with the selection after the Kemmelberg. You've got two Bulls Dermans riders, Amy Peters, very strong all around rider, and their sprinter, the Belgian Julian Dor. So she's done well in this race before. As I said, Lotta Kopecky. Probably the pick in that group is the best best pure sprinter. I think she won a Giro Rosa stage. Pretty sure she's Belgian national champ. Demi Vollering for Park Hotel Valkenburg. Strong rider, but on her own. Uh, she was skipping a lot of turns, Demi Vollering. I'm not sure she had the best legs today. She did try something at the end, but, yeah, she wasn't really a factor. Um, I think a few more climbs would have actually suited her, to be honest. She... Yeah, she looks so good in Liège. No, sorry, Flesh. Uh, trying to attack Van der Breggen. Yeah, not her day. Marta Cavalli for Valcard Travel and Service. The Italian was there. And Lauren Stevens for Team Tibco, who'd done a pretty good job at Brabanchi Pale. She'd been in a breakaway, which got closed down by Grace Brown when Grace Brown went past it. So, again, a couple of good time trialists in there. You've got Peters working for... Uh, Julian Dor, you've got Kopecky, like Mads Pedersen, probably the quickest rider in that group, but on her own, no other teammates. She only she rides for a lot of Sudar ladies. Lisa Brenau, the time trialist, uh, but she got a bit of a sprint as well. And Sarah Roy, who she's going to wait for it to come down to a sprint. That's her best chance if someone makes a mistake, but not a premium sprinter compared to those riders. And then you've got Trek, who... I don't know, in a flat sprint, I was saying it at the time, I was saying they should try and work over these other riders pretty early and because that's the strength, I think, of Diagnan. When you've seen Diagnan go clear in races this year and be really dominant like in Liège, etc., she's gone clear early. And I guess they did try and do that on the Kemmelberg and riders went with them. It's not a long enough climb. But Trek didn't really try to work or work the other riders over at all, actually, they were pulling mostly. I think Amy Peters was doing a fair bit of work and Julian Dor was sitting on. Kopecky was pulling sometimes. Vollering was sitting on completely. Diagnan was sitting on, 
to be honest, but Longo Borghini and Ellen Van Dyke were having to work a fair bit. Cavalli sitting on a bit, Brennau. The, the chase was gaining on them because the front group were a bit dysfunctional. Trek were pulling because I guess it was better than being in a, a massive group behind and they all coming back together. But then again, they were reluctant to pull Capecchi and Julian Dor to the line as well. And then the other riders didn't really have any teammates. So the gap came down to like oof, 12, 15 seconds, I think, with six kilometres to go. The chase group was working well because Sunweb had missed the move. Lippert had crashed at an inopportune time, I think, on the Kemmelberg or just beforehand. And, yeah, they're bringing that down. Canyon Shram had missed the move as well. And then it was attack after attack after attack. And I think it was Alan Van Dyke on the left-hand side. This is all in the last five kilometres, and I don't have KM stamps for them all. I'll just do them in sequence. Alan Van Dyke attacking, and then <laughs> it was really good tactics actually from all the riders involved. Obviously, everyone knew the minute Van Dyke attacked, it was going to be uh, Longo Borghini, the second Trek rider, and not their favourite rider, Diagnan. It's going to be Longo Borghini attacking. And <laughs> Lotte Capecchi was literally glued to Elisa Longo Borghini's wheel when she attacked and was right on it. She, she didn't even get a gap or even force. Pecky and Julian Dor to chase. You've got Amy Peters also then counter-attacking for Bulls Dormans. She did. She was MVP today, in my view, for Gen uh, Women's. And I don't remember Lisa Brenauer uh, really having a dig or Dignan, to be honest. I think Dignan might have tried, but didn't really make too much of an impression. And then coming into the finish, Amy Peters, who just attacked, by the way, and forced the other riders, Ellen Van Dyke, to close her down. And it was a hard chase for Ellen Van Dyke. And other riders had to help her because Peters was, yeah, she, I thought she might have even gone clear if everyone looked at each other. And this is now getting into the last kilometre. Peters then really early sacrifices herself, just like Longo Borghini did for Dignan in the La Course race, which forced Mariana Voss to open up her sprint too early. Amy Peters did exactly the same today for Bulls Dolmans, and it forced Lotte Capecchi, Sarah Roy, and Lisa Brenau to get on her wheel early, and Capecchi in particular to open up her sprint earlier than she would have wanted to, the Belgian. Julian Dor right on Capecchi's wheel, and then stayed in that wheel for ages in the sprint. We're talking like 150, 175 metres, and then in the last 50, 60 metres, she came round Lotte Capecchi pretty easily, actually, and won Henfevelchem for Bulls Dormans and for Belgium, even though Peters is Dutch, but yeah, Belgium missing out in the men's race with Van Aert, etc. Julian Dor doing a magic job. Uh, her 47th pro win. She came second in the Belgian National Chance Road Race, actually behind Lotte Capecchi, uh, I think in a head-to-head sprint. I haven't seen footage of that, but I remember, I remember that was what happened. She's won three star Brugge de Pan in 2018. She's won uh, the Bulls Rental Ronde Montrance, Flanders Diamond Tour. She's won three times. So a good career for Julian Dor, but this was a very big win for her. And also the fact that she didn't really have any good results in La Course, Giro Rosa at all, and she missed out to Capecchi in the road race for the national champs. And then a great team of Bulls Dormans and her be- being able to beat Capecchi, who probably is slightly more talented and faster than her, but, hey, teamwork matters a lot, and we saw that today in both the men's and women's race, the women's race in particular, where 
I think Trek will be going back to the team bus and thinking about what they could have done a little bit differently in that race and maybe using their cards a little bit earlier. And then Bulls Dolman's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> go and watch the last 10Ks. Amy Peters couldn't have done it better. It was incredible from her. And uh, Trek didn't, wasn't a howler from Trek, but just like when I thought Van Aert and Turnison might have played their cards, they could have maybe done something a little bit earlier, predicting what was going to happen. I think Trek, when 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 you pull for so long after the Camelberg, when you pull for 25 kilometres and then you say to those same riders, Longo Bordeghini and Ellen van Dijk, who've been pulling, oh, by the way, I now want you to attack and get a gap and force Amy Peters, who's maybe just not been pulling as hard, force them to chase and close you down and try and get a big gap on them. You could see when Ellen van Dijk attacked, she was tired, and that's not her fault. It's predictable after pulling in the break. So maybe it would have been better to leverage Diagon's ability as a breakaway artist from long range a little bit more, or longer Borghini, especially rather than essentially carrying Lotta Kopecky and Julian Dor to the finale, particularly, particularly when Julian Dor had a very strong teammate in Amy Peters, we've seen her in sort of international races, working for the Netherlands and as a support rider for Voss and Van Vleuten. So that was women's hen Vevelhem. Very interesting last 40 kilometres, I actually thought. And I should read you about the full list. Julian Dor first, Kopecky second, Brenau third, Sarah Roy fourth. Very good result for the Australian for Milton Scott. Marta Cavalli, Italian fifth. Lauren Stevens sixth. Vollering seventh. Dignan eighth. Gap, Peter's ninth, and Lisa Longo-Borghini. So eighth being the best result for Trek, a bit disappointing. Uh, and then I think Lauren Aviv's vibes, Aviv's won the bunch sprint for Team Sunweb way back, like eight seconds back. So, yeah, great race for Henry Wave again. Congrats and a big thank you to Flanders Classics for putting on both of these races under trying conditions and also... No safety concerns that I saw, apart from maybe the crack in the road that took down Rui, Rui Oliveira's front wheel. Um, yeah, just a great event and a great advertisement for cycling, both men and women's. But that's enough from Henry Vavel game. I'm now going to throw to Benji. Uh, he's got his AeroPress 2,000-meter altitude Colombian single origin $50 per kilo bag brewed and throw to him for Parry Tours, Parry Tour rather. Okay, that race was much more interesting than I thought it would be. A good two years ago, they changed the parkour a bit. It was a more likely sprinter race in the past, and now more of a gravel race. And I think we missed saying that quite a bit in the preview yesterday, so I wanted to say that at the start here. It is more likely to be a rider that is good at gravel sections, and according to a lot of teams, there's luck involved. And I think that the Koenig was the main team that spread those words when the parkour changed as they even decided to not race it one year because it was more based on luck than anything else which i don't really agree with today we saw that the riders we expected up there to be up there but also with a tiny bit of luck in the sense that the head favorite that we were speaking about for like five minutes yesterday student kralmerson crashed fairly early on in the stage and Never really came into play anymore. I think with about 50k to go, he was on four minutes of the front of the race with a breakaway of Siskevicius, Reinders, Martin Galland, 
Rikunov, Emil Vermeulen, and Aristi. Now, from all those riders, the strongest one in my eyes is Vermeulen, who has a bit of a sprint and I think was 27th last year or the year before in this race itself. So he's able to set a mediocre result here. So the others have never really been up there. Siskevicius did get a top 10 at Paris Roubaix once, though, while the year before, if I recall correctly, he actually was out of time limit. But yeah, that was special. Anyway, the group behind, the Peloton group or the Elite group, whatever you can call it, was on 1 minute and 10 seconds at that point with 50k to go. And there was a bit of an attack from behind from that Elite group. And the likes of Benoit Cosnefois, who was the second favorite on our podcast yesterday, he attacked away with a group of five. Kasper Pedersen of Sunweb, Rudy Mollar of Groupama, Alexander Krieger and Quentin Pacher from BNB Vital Concept. That group is honestly pretty strong. I had those riders in my mind, except for Krieger, I think, to be of value in this race. With about 39 kilometers to go, they reached up to like 20 seconds from the first group with only Reinders and Vermeulen left. All the rest was being left behind between all the groups and moving towards the well, Peloton group at the back. So they didn't really come into play anymore. And one rider decided to attack in that chasing group. And it was Cosnify again on every single muddy gravel section. He was the rider in that group that did most of the work. Kasper Peterson as well, being able to follow. Mollar had some trouble, came back a bit, but in the end, never really got away again. And one of his teammates from behind actually tried to save it for Groupama by attacking with Bardet and Madua is that teammate of Mollar. So Madua, Bardet trying to catch Cosnefoy and Peterson, who basically just caught the two riders up front, Reinders and Vermeulen, who were unable to follow the pace of Cosnefoy and Peterson because genuinely Cosnefoy was on fire today. I can't say anything more about it, and Peterson for sure as well, to be able to follow that monster. And with 20 kilometers to go, two riders left at the front, Cosnefoy, Peterson, and the group behind, including Madua, Bardet, and three other riders at that point. Nieuwenhuis, a teammate of Kasper Peterson, so he would not be chasing. Fokoc being in there as well for Alpes and Phoenix, and Bargill for Arkea. Those riders were on 34 seconds of the front of the race. Would he get 10 kilometers left? That group came closer and closer, 20 seconds. But suddenly, the time gap jumped to 10 seconds. I got scared. I looked behind the first group, did not see anyone in a pretty long straight road. So this time gap was off, in my honest opinion. And a good two kilometers later, with like 8 or 7k to go, the gap was suddenly back at like 30 seconds. So to me, it was clear that either the time gap was wrong or I didn't see the riders in that full-on shot. But it was pretty clear that I was going to go to a two-man sprint. Looking at that sprint, I didn't really know who would who was going to take it because Kasper Peterson has part of the Sunweb lead-out for Case Ball at the Tour de France as well and was pretty strong in that. We know he's got a sprint, but Cosnefoy in brabant was not too slow either. I thought during the brabant recap that Cosnefoy should try and trust the sprint a bit more, but today I'm afraid it didn't was... It just wasn't enough. In the last kilometer, we saw that Peterson was leading it out. He had the confidence, looked behind him every single second. And the moment that Cosnefoy kicked, Peterson kicked at the same exact moment because he he saw that it was going to happen. And maybe it was a bit phoned in by Cosnefoy, but Peterson was so good at handling that move from Cosnefoy from behind that 
because the fund never even got past Peterson. So Peterson stayed ahead and he ended up winning Paris Tour in what a wonderful way. Working together with, well, the strongest rider in the race, Kozlova for me, but Peterson just has the better sprint in the end and was able to follow Kozlova. So the difference was not that great. All in all, a great race for me. I enjoyed it. I certainly did. It is interesting to see how a lower start field behaves on this kind of parkour with Paris Tour sometimes. Last year, there were better riders than this year because this year, Kent Wevelgem is on the same day, which to my mind are two of the small number of races that include gravel sections. Kent Wevelgem with those plug streets in the middle and here with plenty of them among the road. We've got Trobro Leon, I think, throughout the season as well. But I love these races and some people think they don't have a place in cycling. I feel like they do because it's the riders that decide what skill they want to endorse themselves in in cycling and i feel like this is still a part of road cycling because the majority of the race is road with cyclocross it's the other way around and sometimes people try and point at this race and say that it's it's basically the cyclocross race i think patrick lefebvre said that once but i could be wrong in that but yeah in the end i enjoyed it very good race and well we were straight off with our picks i think because we didn't pick sunan Anderson because we didn't want to pick a real favorite, but the likes of M80 Jens, just Wanty in general, never really came into play. So I feel like that is a team that perhaps were the losers of this party tour, the the weaker ones in the uh, in the race that we expected to be up there. But I think that rounds it up a bit. We don't have any I, I interesting Buhani. controversies. You pick Buhani? <laughs> I think well, that's he, Buhani. He never came into play either. <laughs> yeah, not. I mean, usually if I, if you pick Buani for like a one pro French one day race, yeah, fifty fifty, <laughs> you'll be correct. Not today. I guess the gravel. Yeah, the, this ain't the race for him. Um, but he's in good form, so keep watching out for our man Nasser Buani. But yeah, that's that's a big Super Sunday, and we've tried to do four races. We've done it in under an hour and fifteen minutes. I'd like to. Pat ourselves on the back, check out the oh, I don't know why I'm telling people to check out the timestamps because there's obviously at the end of the podcast. Let us know if you like the way Benji and I divided and conquered. I think it added to the sort of the quality of our the podcast rather than us just basically reading out official race tickets without having really watched the other races properly. Uh, I prefer the way we've done it this way. Thanks as always for your continued support and let a friend know about the podcast or give us a review on the Apple Store or Apple Podcast Player, if you get a chance, bring on the beef for uh, Tour of Flanders between Mathieu van der Poel and Wa van Aert, even though they probably don't really have any beef. I'm sure the media, we can... Sports are already fanning the flames of that. So go and check out the sports.be website and you'll see it there. Congrats to Ruben Guerrero for getting the W. Congrats to Pedersen. Congrats to Julian Dor And... Casper Pedersen, sat our man, Cosner Fra couldn't win. Looking forward to the rest day tomorrow. And yeah, thanks for Lacole for supporting our Giro podcast. As always, I'll leave you with one remark. Calma. Oi, estoy aquí. Ciao.